Hello and welcome to Match Day FM. It's Morgan and it's deflected in out of absolutely nothing. Curzon and Ashton lead. Dixie to Hardy. Hardy in behind. Hardy past the goalkeeper. Hardy into the goal. 2-1 filed. Chance of Colin Day bubbling everywhere again. The other shot. And it's in. It's a recall as for Colin Day. It's been coming. What's a gap and he goes through it. And Akron gets the first try of the game for Siddle. Dan Bradley on his debut scores his first goal for Files. They've got it with Smith, and they've got it with Smith! They've got a score with Smith! Unbelievable! Great chance! They've won it! Ashton have won it! Hello and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Matchday FM. Today we will be carrying on our preview of the new Premier League season and in particular discussing the hopes for the 2021 campaign for Manchester United, Newcastle, Sheffield United, Southampton and Sheffield United. My name is Sam Jordan and joining me today is our panel consisting of Joseph Richardson. Joe, how are we? Good mate, you? I'm not too bad, thank you mate, not too bad. Chris Stott is with us. Chris, how are we doing? Yeah, I'm good mate, yourself? I'm not too bad, mate. I'm not too bad. Feeling a bit sorry for myself. Got it yesterday, you know. But you know, I'm a bit of a uh, hypochondriac, shall we say? So, don't feel too sorry for me. And we've also got another Chris in the building, Chris Coughlin. Chris, how are you, sir? Very, very good, and excited at the fact that in about a week's time, I'll be getting ready for match of the day too. Are you trying to say there, Chris, that you wouldn't rather be on match day FM with us? If given the choice, then you know it's a very tough one to decide between, isn't it? <laughs> got a week I'll, I'll let that one slide as I was expected to be professional well we're going to dive straight in we have been doing a preview to uh, the new Premier League season the 2020-21 season seems a bit mad that we're discussing this already considering that the, the last season's only just finished about three weeks ago so I'm going to start with Manchester United obviously last year got into the coveted Champions League places after a dramatic upturn in form uh, in the second half of last season. Joe, I'm going to come to you first. Last year, obviously, started badly. Real poor start. Even though they, they turned over Chelsea on the first day of the season. Can you put your finger on the why that might be, Joe? Or why do you think that happened? Tricky one. Um, it's To be honest, mate, it's uh, it's pretty hard to um, to think back all the way to the start of last season. It seems like so, so long ago. I mean, there was, um, you know, some upheaval around Paul Pogba. Obviously, Ollie's reign had started amazingly well, went on a fantastic uh, winning streak. And, you know, he probably got to the stage where, you know, considering the squad he had, um, he was probably probably getting the best, the best that he could out of them, which was, you know, they're, they're an inconsistent bunch at the best of times. But yeah, no, it's, 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 dif- it's difficult to, to pin, uh, pin down why. I think overall, they are quite a streaky team. But um, I, I think you know once they get on on a roll, they 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 really churn out the results. And um, if if they have any any difficulties, then they, they they struggle. Coming up to Christmas and the new year and the January transfer window, Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer. There, there was a lot of people talking about Solskjaer maybe being under under real threat of losing his job. Um, obviously, we've seen on the likes of Sky Sports, Roy Keane came to, came to a staunch defence of his in that heated debate that he had with Jamie Carragher. What were your thoughts at that particular point in the season? Did you think that Man United needed to make a change or did you have total faith in Solskjaer to turn it around? I had a bit of faith in in Oli and the way he was trying to go about things. There were signs that you know there was progress in terms of the, the way they were playing um, you know, moving on from, from the previous managers. But the point at which I thought there could have been a change was in the aftermath of when Pochettino left Spurs. 
because you know he had been the man who many people had lined up as being a Manchester United manager. And I think when that happened, it was always a case of how many defeats is Oli away from being replaced here. That was the, the feeling a lot of people had. And at one point, I, w- I was thinking, you know, this could be, if it's going to happen, it's going to be now. But as it went on, Oli just seemed to get things to click. It was starting to, to get a little bit, you know, more positive even before the lockdown. But it obviously goes without saying, Bruno Fernandes's arrival really helped United to, to spur them on. But yeah, I, I think if we'd have, say, gone to the back end of the season and, and United hadn't have, you know, hit that form, then I think on the balance of probability, they could have been quite easily a new man in, in the dugout this season. But credit to Oli. And Chris Coughlin, obviously Joe mentioned there, but Paul Pogba, at the start of last season, there was real strong murmurings that Pogba wants to leave the club. He's had a real indifferent time at Manchester United um, in his career there. How vital was it that Pogba spent a large part of that first part of the season, in, well, in fact, the whole last season, really, he was injured, uh, had, an, had an ankle injury, missed a lot of games. Do you think that was vital in United's slump, if you want to call it, the start of last season? Going back to the 4-0 against Chelsea, um, Pogba was instrumental in that game. Admittedly, then the week after, he, he missed a penalty against Wolves and then the whole debate started about who Manchester United's penalty taker was. Then Rashford took on the next week and Palace and missed. So even with Pogba in and amongst the team, there was a bit of chaos, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I like I like Paul Pogba. I will defend his talents. I might not defend some of his attitude on the pitch like for example the, the penalty gave away against West Ham at the end of the season you, you can't defend that kind of stuff but in terms of his ability I will defend that all day long um, my, my biggest issue for United well, with Manchester United last season was you look at their consistency I mean even around December time they beat Manchester City with an inc- incredible performance at the Etihad every time you looked up it was like the red arrow was just flying forward and, and they won that game on the counter-attack their next two games they drew at Everton, or sorry, drew against Everton at Old Trafford, and then lost 2 0 at Watford. And that was another in the catalogue of the, of the David De Gea errors that, that we saw last season. The consistency obviously improved vastly after the, the defeat against Burnley. Bruno Fernandes came in. There was just an attitude that he was that conductor that they needed, that man that could pull the strings. And he was the first. Manchester United, certainly in an attacking sense, the first Manchester United signing I'd seen for a while that just knew how to take control of a game, just knew how to show authority during a game. And there was no coincidence that they improved massively under him. With regards to the question about Paul Pogba, it's interesting with regards to his influence or his lack of influence rather, because off the pitch, I don't see how it was doing them any help. January comes around, Man United go and sign Bruno Fernandes from Sporting Lisbon. How important has he been to this Manchester United side? And secondly, what would you think is the biggest, the biggest difference he's made to, to the Manchester United starting 11? He's beyond crucial to this team. He just makes them tick. Everything seems to go through him. You know, when they're watching the game and on TV, you don't see the things he does off the ball. And I think, you know, I've seen him a, a few times live and... It's the way he's talking to players around him and pointing them in the right direction. He'll play a pass and straight away he's on the move. And we've not seen at United a number 10 who's done that for a long time. He just seems to make 
players around him more confident and that makes them better players. And as well for the players in front of him, your, your Marshalls, your Rashfords, your Greenwoods, he's playing them the passes they want. And that is why they've scored so many goals with him there because he can find them when it doesn't look like it's doable. Um, you know, he's, for me, probably the best United signing. Oof. You're probably talking nine on a decade. Really, he's just something, wow. he's, he's special. He's a really, really Since Van Persie? exceptional. Yeah, you're probably, yeah, other than Van Persie, I'm really racking my brain to think of a recent player who's come in and made such an instant impact. Big for them as well to solve the penalty problem. Really, wasn't it just to get someone that could actually score for 12 yards? Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I was thinking Bruno when you were Bruno saying... Bruno Fernandes. Yeah, well, when you were saying before, at the start of the season, they missed them two penalties early on in the season. The Crystal Palace game, they could have in theory won. Cause... The Wolves game as well in the season. Yeah, yeah. just so... Yeah. If he starts that the season, I mean, obviously, you know, hindsight's you know, a wonderful thing. You want to thing. lose the Palace game. Yeah, it's, hindsight's a wonderful thing. But if Fernandes had a full season, it, it could have been a little bit... Ha- higher they, you know they could have actually pushed City it'll be interesting to see how how they develop this year obviously that's a caveat to that he's got to go and do it again Joe I'm going to throw it forward now to the, the front three Rashford Martial and uh, Mason Greenwood what do you make of that front three is this a front three that could realistically could, could have a claim to be up there with the likes of Liverpool's front three or even Manchester City front three definitely um, to be fair Martial Martial's uh, United career has been very interesting because when he first came in, you were thinking, you know, the first, I remember the first couple of games, him scoring about four or five goals. And you're thinking, wow, this guy has ice in his veins. He's such a good finisher. I remember him scoring. Uh, oh, no, I, I can see Chris's I know face. where this is going. Uh, I wasn't even thinking of the Liverpool game, actually. I remember him scoring, <laughs> at, I remember him scoring at Saints in a 3-2, um, 3-2 win. And you, when, you went through on, when he went through on goal, you just knew he was going to score. Um, and then I, I remember like, that game funny enough. Did he get two? Yeah, if you can't remember, then I'll fact chance. I have he was in the black kit for United, wasn't he? Or the black, the black top, yeah. Anyway, yeah. um, Martial, I mean, uh, has been in and out of the side playing uh, left wing, and you know, yes, he's very effective coming in from that side, but you know, you just wanted more from him, you wanted more end product. Now, Ollie's put him down the middle as a number nine, and um, he's he's got you've you've got the best out of him. If those three, with with Greenwood as well, obviously he's been a been a revelation. Um, I think I don't know. It's, it's difficult to say out of those three who's the best finisher out of them. I'd say naturally, I'd say Greenwood is, and Both then as well, yeah, deadly. And then and then you've got and then you've got Rashford on the other side where he has just taken his game to a to a whole new level. Um, He's fantastic. Um, you know, he's, he's got real personality on the pitch. He's, he's not afraid to beat a man. Shoot as well. I mean, you know, at times you can say with some strikers, you know, shooting from all angles can be a bit selfish. But I think in his case, you know, he's, he's, got, the, um, he's got the balls, he's got the metal to do it. So, and, you know, if, if he was to get 20 goals a season, wow. I mean, we'd really be talking, talking about him uh, along with the likes of Sterling. But yeah, no, big future ahead for those front three. And yeah, to be fair, Sam, I, I think, I think um, uh, they are getting there. They're not, they're not Liverpool's front three. Um, they've got the, the potential to be in terms of if I was a defender coming up against them three, I would be scared 
running scared uh you won't want to play them so um yeah no uh th- those those three are going to be key for them this season looking at the transfer business that manchester united have already done obviously they've signed donny van der beek for 40 million pounds seems a snip considering that real madrid were looking to sign him for 80 million the, the deal li- literally was done until covid came along yeah exactly um Jaden sancho they've been linked with him all summer what other positions do Man United need to strengthen, Chris? And, and other than Sancho, and, and is there anyone else in particular that you would like to see go through the door at Old Trafford? Not personally. <laughs> Stop uh, <yeah>, the <laughs> But, but um, obviously, Sancho is a huge talent. I've seen him for a couple of years for Borussia Dortmund, and he's hit double figures for both goals and assists in both of the seasons for Borussia Dortmund. That just tells you how involved he is at the top end of the pitch, and I think he would make a world of difference to... To Manchester United, even if you know, the front three are as good as as Joey said they are, and I I fully go along with that. It's funny that you could call a new signing technically Dean Henderson. That is going to be a a really exciting battle because I, in terms of a top club, a top top club, when what was the last proper goalkeeping battle that we saw? Because David de Gea, he knows that his mistakes last year they're just just unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable for a keeper, for a first choice keeper at Man United. And Dean Henderson, we all know, he's a top, top talent, and a six-year deal as well. So it shows he believes that he's good enough to become Manchester United's number one. It's his dream. That's what he wants to do. So even if you want to classify him as a new signing, I think that is that could be such a brilliant battle. I watched the hair actually the day for Germany against Spain. You could tell. Dean Henderson was on his mind, to be honest with you, because he put, he, he put in one of the best displays I've seen from De Gea for a while, to be honest with you. Who are they going to Solskjaer chooses to start against Crystal Palace? Could tell us a lot, really, couldn't it? Is there anyone that you would have in mind, or you would have in mind, Joe, uh, to come into that Manchester United back four that would improve it? And is there a position within that back four that you would say has to be a priority? Uh, yes and yes. Starting with left-back, Luke Shaw, in my opinion, I, I love, well, I used to love the guy um, and, uh, in the Southampton days. I don't think he is capable of being Man United's first choice left back. I think, um, I think he needs replacing, to be honest. Um, so I would bring a left back in and that would be a priority for me. Um, Centre back, yeah. I was talking in passing the other day. I mean, Upa Meccano, I know we're all a big fan of him. What a, what a signing he would be. I mean, um, like, I don't think it would be too difficult to to get him out of a selling club in RB Leipzig. I mean, wow. He's got, he's got, he's got the least clause, hasn't he, of him? Is it 40-odd million? He's, coming he's in signed, next he signed a, yeah, he signed a new contract, which uh, Leipzig okay. have made very public on social media. Oh, I bet they have. <laughs> Put him in there. Uh, left-footed centre-back as well. So, yeah, centre-back and left-back for me. It's, I want to say I want to say something about the midfield. I I, I get um, Matic obviously had a very good season. He does kind of break the mold of that kind of uh, midfield dictator that you see the the big the big teams have in there that has a lot of legs. In terms of the future, I would love them to bring in a, a midfield general basically who would dictate the play and who's an enforcer. Really, I I, th- I think Van der Beek. I think he's gonna he's gonna play in the in the midfield too, and um, and I mean he has got the ability to play there. But again, in the big games, would you start him and Pogba? I mean, if if, if I was Man United, um, I I think yeah, a, a midfield general like you know 
And Fernandinho, for me, is the benchmark um, for what he's done at Man City. Um, he's got absolutely everything. Starts, attacks, breaks up the play. Um, he is absolutely brilliant. And I, think, I, I do think they need one of those players. Um, I think Van der Beek is obviously a great signing for the overall squad. But I don't think it is entirely necessary. As a United fan, I would probably actually, of their midfield three, drop Pogba and put Matic in. I think, wow. Because honestly, Pogba is one of those, he can be the most infuriating player because he could be turning it on against City, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal, look a million dollars. Not Everton though, Chris, then, no. I don't class Everton as a big team, unfortunately, mate. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he'll be absolutely pants. He'll be pants against Burnley. Oh, it was, it was like a dagger through my heart. <laughs> but honestly, like a couple of seasons ago, I remember a game against West Brom where he was awful. And then he went and played against City and turned game around. That's what, if Pogba has the consistency, he, he gets in that team. Matic yeah. is very consistent. And I would like to, I think Van der Beek, you know, he's got the energy, a bit of creativity, a bit of steel. He could be a really good, ultimately, it's a brilliant headache for Solskjaer to have. Chris mentioned the goalkeeping situation. Um, now, obviously, Dean Henderson, he has just come back to the club from Sheffield United. Who would you start with, David De Gea or Dean Henderson? I think you could flip a coin because I think he's going to have the desired impact either way in the fact that it will make both of them better. I think De Gea ultimately always knew that Romero wasn't going to be number one. Henderson now has the capability of being the number one. And I think that is going to push De Gea on. But at the same time, I also think that Henderson knows he has to become a world-class goalkeeper to be the next David De Gea. And I think, again, he has the ability to do that. And it could be a really good thing for them both to go head-to-head. If it has the desired effect, it could be a masterstroke. I would, would not be surprised if Henderson started against Palace just because it's Palace. If it was an Arsenal or Chelsea, I think it had gone De Gea. But yeah, I wouldn't be overly surprised if, he, if that was the big, bold move that he made. I don't want a flip of a coin. Who would you start opening game of the season? David De Gea or Dean Henderson? Henderson. Joe? Before I say it, I think Ollie will play De Gea. Yeah, I would go Henderson, me. Chris Coughlin? I agree with Joey in that I think he will start De Gea because it seems the safer option. I would start Henderson because that wouldn't half ramp up the pressure straight away. And De Gea would know he was in a battle from day one. Me personally, I would start yeah. out with De Gea. I think if he drops De Gea and puts in Henderson, he's creating a rob for his own back because yeah. he would never be able to drop Henderson unless he had a bad game. Right, chaps, um, I'm going to ask you a few predictions. First of all, Joe, an acceptable finish for Manchester United this season. And a predicted finish for Manchester United this season? Fourth and fourth. Chris Stott? Acceptable ultimately has to be title challenging. And I think they will... Oh. <laughs> I mean, I've not helped myself in previous podcasts by saying Chelsea will finish third. But very quickly, I would say if you was making an 11 out of Chelsea United players, I think it would be 6-5 either way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back on what I said the other, other day about Chelsea. I think United are going to finished third not like you to be indecisive Chris I know uh, Chris Coughlin uh, acceptable 
for me, Manchester United just you know, maintaining a Champions League position. For me, fourth, purely because you know, we, we talked about Liverpool and Manchester City, albeit I, I think that ultimately they probably will be the top two, although there's one or two doubts I have um, with regards to Chelsea. I think Chelsea could have gate-crashed the top two, but again, that's for another day. Um, I'm going to go for fourth, Manchester United. I think Manchester United, what's acceptable is they have to get closer to Manchester City and Liverpool. They just have to close that gap. If they close the gap and close it considerably, I think that could be considered a good season as long as they go and win a trophy. In terms of predicted finish, I think they're going to finish fourth. You're listening to Matchday FM. It was his number hoot. We all laugh now. Was there any point when you were just like, please stop? I remember watching that match and I was thinking, when is this going to end? I was meant to be going to see uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine and I just kept saying to her, like, you know, just watching the end of this match and then <laughs> 10 minutes later, you know, another Patience. text, where are you? Yeah, it still hasn't finished. And to be honest, that's probably why she's an ex-girlfriend of mine. Huh? <laughs> I was going to say, but, blame, blame John Isner for that, I was. Yeah, and, uh, and Nicholas and who? yeah, both of them. This is Matchday FM, home of sporting banter and debate. Newcastle United chaps, what an interesting football club Newcastle are. Where do you start? Obviously, Rafa Benitez leaves in the summer. They bring in Steve Bruce. That's met with like the most negativity ever, considering that he's a Geordie as well and a Newcastle fan. But the mad thing about it was is that Steve Bruce comes into Newcastle. Everyone's expecting him to potentially go down. And he actually ends up doing a pretty decent job. Under the circumstances, very, very good. I mean, never at any stage were they in danger of going down. You know, finishing 13th, yeah, no, very, very good. You, you said, Sam, like Steve Bruce's appointment was was met with, uh, yes, uh, outrage, really. I mean, you, we go, you go from the absolute messiah, who is Rafa Benitez, to Steve Bruce in the Newcastle fans' eyes, who is the epitome of the Ashley ownership, a former Sunderland manager. And it's like, oh, it's an absolute recipe for disaster. You know, it's still it's still the same squad as has been for the last three, four years. It's still got a load of championship players in there. Their top scorer that I did all my research because I'm so uh, professional on the show, six league goals, top scorer John Joe Shelby. I mean, what? Wow. Shelby, top wow. scorer. I really expect you to say his name, I'll be honest. Wow. I mean, that is... Uh, yeah, and... Uh, I think I think they they for goals um, they were reliant on set pieces etc. But no, no, I I couldn't believe that when I saw that. Um, but uh, we'll we'll get on to it. Uh, they they've made a very interesting signing in the striking position to replace what has been a disastrous buy in Joel Linton. Is the, is it fair to say that Steve Bruce has actually done a better job than what Rafa Benitez done? Is that would you say that's a fair argument or? I could go along with that to be fair. I think. Because of the fact that, you know, like you say, everybody expected the worst. To then go and at worst match what sort of Benitez was sort of doing there really sort of makes you wonder, actually, Steve Bruce might actually do a really good job here. In the circumstances, I think he did as good a job as anybody could have done at that football club. Realistically, could even Mourinho or anybody do much better with the squad they had? Probably not. If they're going to get any better, they have to have an attacking element. And whether they can have that um, in the circumstances, I'm not sure. But, you know, I think fans will be happy to be away from the relegation for a while and, and then look to potentially build if they can get new owners in. Obviously, for the last few years, Mike Ashley's been looking to sell the football club. 
he's trying to get rid of the football club to the Saudi royal family for whatever reason that now hasn't taken place. How do you see this playing out in, in the future? Well, the impact of the takeover is that as far as Newcastle fans are concerned, they've gone from Kylian Mbappe to Jeff Hendrick. I don't get why Newcastle is such a difficult club to sell. One, one city club, magnificent fan base, fantastic stadium. On the face of it, they're a dream club for most people to come in and buy. The price tag is around £300 million. Is that too um, high? I, that, that was my initial thought, to be honest with you. I think it's always been around £300 million. The, th- the thing is, and I know you, there was the talk about Benitez a couple of minutes ago. My issue there is that there was no effort to back Benitez. Yet as soon as Benitez gets out the door, he's prepared to give Steve Bruce £40 million to chuck on Joel Linton and about mm. £20 million to, to, to buy some Maxman. And, well, you, you, guys, you guys know how much I love Alan Sam Maxman. He, he's a player that... Chris, don't wreck it for me. I was going to come <laughs> on to him. Look, let, let me have my moment. Oh, I, need, I, need to talk, I need to talk about some Maxman. Let me have my moment. But, I'll come back uh, to you on him. Thank you. Thank you. Um, in terms of the... The impact to take over, of course, the optimism gets kind of drained from Newcastle fans because this is a team that they could have won the Premier League, of course, back in the 90s, were in the Champions League in the 2000s, have been starved of trophies for around 50 years or so. And it's a club that, under the right ownership, could easily, easily hit the heights again. They've made some signings already in the summer. Jeff Hendricks come in. Jamal Lewis is on the verge of completing his deal uh, from Norwich. Callum Wilson, as we've mentioned. Um, Ryan Fraser as well. Uh, obviously, free transfer from Bournemouth. It looks like as if there's some good business going on there. What do we make of the summer signings so far? Chris Stott, I'll come to you first. The ones that obviously, they've already only got um, Hendrick over the line at the moment. Very decent player. The players that they're close, apparently close to getting, obviously, I think Wilson will be a 10 15 goal striker with the right service. Fraser could be the one that provides that service as well. Um, throw in the man that um, Coughlin mentioned, Sam Maximam. Shelf, he's got a great pass in him as well. You know, the, the, that is, you know, I was saying before that they've lacked an attack. That could be the, the missing links, the Fraser and, and, and the Wilson. Lewis looks a decent player as well. And it's the right sort of players to get in as well. Premier League experience. For, you know, the three out of the four have got more than than Lewis. And then you put, you know, Lewis is a, a young, up-and-coming player. And that's what Newcastle need, need to do now, invest in good, good talent to build a team to go forward and challenge to try and get into into Europe again. And, you know, that's really where Newcastle, sh- let's face it, should be pushing. Chris, let's get to it. How important is Alan St. Maximum to Newcastle's ambitions this season? Absolutely crucial for me. You look at him last season, and I think it's a fair um, judgment if you come back at me and say his stats didn't reflect anything significant, really, in terms of his goals or assists. I fully appreciate that. But Newcastle fans have been crying out for a player this exciting, I would say, since David Ginola, in terms of how exciting he is on the ball. I think how good I think he can be. I, I really do think he can be that. He'll get on the ball. And he'll have a go. And there's too many players around the world of football, say in mid-table teams, that they'll get the ball, have a look for options, and then just pass it backwards. He'll get that ball and he will run at you. And he is tricky. He's quick. He's direct. One game particularly got three assists against Bournemouth towards the end of the season. Yes, he had a very good 
uh, form post-lockdown, really. And I, I really do think he is a proper gem, a really, really good player. And when he has players that have pace around him, like the likes of Fraser, the likes of Wilson, it, it, could, it could turn out to be a very exciting attack. And Alan St. Maxman is going to be crucial to that. I, I agree, Alan St. Maxman, top player. I think if they can keep him fit, because he had a couple of injury niggles, didn't he? Um, yeah, yeah. I remember so, against Sheffield, he got a hamstring injury. His end product does need to improve, but with better players around him, more attacking players around him, I can very much see that being the case. Acceptable finish for Newcastle this season and predictive finishes. Chris Stott, I'm going to come to you first. Acceptable top half, um, or at least trying to get into it. Um, where I think they'll finish, I've got them 12th, purely because I think you can throw a blanket of four or five teams in that sort of region. I really do. I've moved Everton up, just for your information. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I forgot about that. Yeah. You moved them up now that we've signed, you know, Alan the Whale Beater. Yeah. For, for the record, you're now eighth. All oh, right. Brilliant. I like that. Mm. Wow, like, he's what? gone from 13 to eight. I know. It's interesting, isn't it? Anyway, Chris Coughlin. Well, obviously, 13th last season. I think that was a good enough finish. I, I really do think Steve Bruce worked wonders with the squad that he had to finish in, in that position. And like Joey said, ultimately be comfortable for most of the season. I think they take 13th again, but I am going to, I'm going to push them a bit higher. And I am going to say 11th, which perhaps doesn't reflect how much excitement I've shown about some of their attackers. But uh, I am going to go 11th for Newcastle, but it would not surprise me if they reached the top half. Joe? Well, the acceptable finish from the owner is 17th. That's, that, that's, that's, that's a that's very the, good point. That's, 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 the bare, that's the bare facts, and that's, um, that's how, the, how the club has been run. Before we had an, all, uh, the news on the grapevine about all these signings, I actually had them to uh, pretty much go down. I'm having to backtrack on that. Uh, I'm going to go for 14th. Completely agree with you again, Joe. I think they're going to finish 14th. So I didn't think they would ever go down, I'll be honest. I thought they would probably finish about 16th. You're listening to the Matchday FM podcast. Why not let us know what you think? Get in touch by searching for Matchday FM on social media. Sheffield United. Now, obviously, Sheffield United, the surprise package of the 2019-20 season. Pre-COVID, were looking like they might challenge for the Champions League place. I think it's fair to say they fell off a little bit post-lockdown. Talk to you about the performances, Chris, of, sort of some, like, some of their players in, in particular, the likes of John Lundstrom and the back three. First, let's get it right. It's Lord Lundstrom for all those FPL connoisseurs out there. <laughs> um, he, he, he was magnificent, certainly at the beginning of the season. The big thing for Sheffield United now is that he's in the last year of his contract. What, what do they do with him there going forward? The defence was the big thing. They only scored 39 goals and really when you look at the rest of the top half, it was a pretty pitiful return, to be honest with you, from Sheffield United. But their defence is what won them games last season, really. Plenty of 1-0s. You look at the early on the season against Crystal Palace, they won both games against Palace home and away, 1-0. And it was a big thing. Dean Henderson, um, obviously going is a big blow and we'll get on to his replacement, I'm sure, in a second. The back three was... Huge, absolutely huge. And this is a back three that came up from the championship. Overlapping centre-backs was always going to be interesting to see if they stuck with that plan. And boy, did it work. Mainly because I think half the teams 
didn't know how to deal with it. They knew Sheffield United be playing it, but I don't think some teams knew how to deal with the, with uh, Basham on O'Connell overlapping. And there's no coincidence for me that their form dipped off after lockdown when Jack O'Connell was picking up these injuries. And I do want to go on to the goalkeeping situation with Aaron Ramsdale coming back from Bournemouth. I'm just not sure with regards to how well he's going to replace Dean Henderson for me. I know he was Bournemouth player of the season, but first of all, if a goalkeeper gets player of the season for a club, that generally doesn't say an awful lot about their season. And I just do worry a little bit because I do see quite a bit of a drop from Dean Henderson down to Aaron Ramsdale. The job that Chris Wilder's done with Sheffield United, I mean, obviously, he's come in when they're in League One. Obviously, it's his hometown club. Talk to me, Joe, about the job he's done with Sheffield United. His, his job is just um, absolutely astonishing, really. They're the best unit that I've seen in the Premier League for a long, long, long time. I mean, as, a, as an entire team, they just work for each other. And they're just so well coached. They are honestly so well coached, well drilled. Everyone knows what they're doing. As you said, like, you know, you look at that squad on paper and there's, there's not one real standout player. I mean, going forward, I don't know. I'd probably say the, 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 best, the best two players, the standout players, are probably the fullbacks, um, Stevens and Baldock, I'd say. Up there with, obviously, nowhere near the Liverpool uh, fullbacks. But um, they're, they're some of the best fullback wingbacks in the league for sure I, I, re- I really like them it's, it's, it, it was obviously hard not to, uh, not to be rooting for them to do well and it was, it was a bit of a shame really that they fell away somewhat but you know still to finish ninth was, was an amazing achievement um, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Aaron Ramsdale um, whenever, whenever I watched him last season um, I have to admit you know uh, I don't always have the time to watch every game on TV but um, I, of what I've seen of him, um, I just really like him. He, he he's very he's very good with his feet, very uh, very comfortable. Um, same with uh, same with Henderson. You know, at the end of the day, he's a very very good shot stopper. Uh, I, I don't really know what there is um, what there is to throw at him, really. To be honest, um, I, I get the fact um, that, you know player of the player of the season in a relegation team, you could potentially throw that at him. But um, I, I think. In terms of goalkeepers, you know, you look at some of the the big teams. I know we've we lambasted Kepper the other day on um, on the podcast. I mean, uh, Ramsdale for me, like outside of the top five or six keepers, was probably the best in in the league. I, th- I thought he was brilliant. From an Everton experience, I mean, Everton have took a few players from relegated teams over the years, and you know, Jessica Gay, for example, was in the Aston Villa team, probably one of the worst teams ever to be relegated from the Premier League. And and wrong. The likes of, you know, say, Robertson and Vinealdum, mm-hmm. Liverpool, what they have done for Liverpool in the last few years is absolutely not, nothing short of astonishing. Mm-hmm. I just feel like it. I just feel like it's a bit of a gamble. I could well be sat here uh, so in it, May ha- having to eat an awful lot of humble pie. I think you will be. Fair enough. Uh, moving on. A lot of the players that he has are very much like Chris Wilder, aren't they? good, honest pros. And I think, for me, he should have been manager of the year. I don't care that Klopp won the league. Chris Wilder did the best job in, in that league in terms of taking a team. Everybody thought they'd finish bottom. And then to take them to within a couple of months, but for COVID, they'd have probably actually made Europe. 
let, let's be brutally honest, at that point in time, they were streets ahead of the likes of Arsenal, for example. I know Arsenal still missed out. You know, it's unfortunate for them, but wow, what a job. I think Wilder got LMA manager of the decade as well. I mean, when you consider just how long Sheffield United were in League One for, just, just couldn't get out of there. And Elliot will, will love me for mentioning Yorkshire. this. Was it Halifax, Alfreton? He's done his hard graft. And Proper I, story. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's the Jamie Vardy of management. I that's, like that. That's yeah. great. That's ultimately the only way you can describe it, isn't it? That he's, he's come from the bottom and he's become... If he was Portuguese, Spanish, French, German, he'd be talked about for bigger jobs in Sheffield United. Cristiano Wilder, Wildero. Wildero. <laughs> you know, honestly, yeah. I, I think he's, he's done that good of a job. I had That's to, a Joey. bigger discussion. <laughs> yeah, Joe, Joe's currently looking for um, a toilet to go and flush his head down. Yeah, I think. Oh, it was after, just so inevitable he'd do that as well. <laughs> Sheffield United, we've discussed the signings of Adam Ramsdale, also they've signed Wes Follingham, but also they're on the verge of making the triple signing of uh, Max Lowe and Jamie Bogle, both from Derby, but also Oliver Bay from West Brom, with Callum Robinson going in the opposite direction. Now, Callum Robinson was signed for big money, Chris, um, last, yeah, last around, summer. around six million. By Sheffield United standard, I know they obliterated that with the signing of um, Sander Burge in January, but while they made comments on Friday that Sheffield United were on the verge of of making three international signings. Um, surely to God, the signings of Max Lowe, Jaden Bogle and Oliver Bear can't be the three names that he was talking about. Surely not. I mean, I think they need signings because otherwise I can see a bit of second season syndrome creeping in, that, that, old, that old chestnut. The, those three signings would bring youth, although, albeit, Ollie Burke is running out of time to keep that tag, to be honest with you. He's someone that hasn't kicked on since being a really promising young player in Nottingham Forest. Sanderberg, you mentioned him there. I mean, he signed from Genk, and I saw him, saw him live at Anfield um, in the Champions League, and I thought made a very good signing. Only one goal so far, but it'd be interesting to see what role he plays this season. But I do think Sheffield United need backup because otherwise, I can see it being a bit of a struggle for them, to be honest with you, despite all the praise that we gave them for last season. Talk to you about the importance of keeping the core of the Sheffield United squad together. Even the players, the likes of Billy Sharp and David McGoldrick, not necessarily, in terms of goals, they didn't necessarily get a high amount of goals, but talk to you about how important they are to Sheffield United. Yeah, I think that experience of somebody like a Billy Sharp, who, um, you know, again, he's another one who's had to do it the hard way. You know, he's going to be like a, a coach on the pitch. It comes back to a point Joe made earlier about them being the best unit. I think that's why it is important to try and keep the core of that team and not break it up like so many have, have done in the past because that's the core that got them there. That's the core that makes them who they are. So, yeah, I think that core is, is massive for them, not just for the experience, but it ties together everything that they do in terms of the way they play and how they go about the performance with attitude. What positions would you say, Joe, are the most important for Sheffield United to strengthen, other than obviously the goalkeeper who, who they've now signed? striker I think is a pretty obvious one um, I think Moussa did pretty well uh, for them uh, last season I know you mentioned McGoldrick as well and Sharp I both know them very well well the, the signing of Berger hasn't particularly worked so far I don't think he needs a um, role he needs a role whether it's defensively yeah. or going forward I, yeah. I, I don't see a designated role for him 
yeah, I'd probably say striker and um, and central midfield if if I'm being totally honest. But yeah, I I absolutely totally agree with with Stotty um, about the the core of those players. Um, we've seen with Bournemouth um, if you make you know, Bournemouth had their core of players that brought them up through the leagues, through the League One Championship. Um, and to be honest, Eddie Howe kind of struggled to uh, add to that uh, with, you know, what you have to say is quite bad recruitment. Um, I really hope that Sheffield United don't go down the same path. You have to be really, really solid with your recruitment. You need to get the, the characters that you know will uh, enhance that side or enhance the squad and also add quality, not just, you know, um, a £20 million player from France or what have you who's shown flashes of brilliance or what have you, because that's what has real, you know, that's what could really derail them. Um, and, yeah, no, I'll, we'll obviously get on to where we, where we will um, have them finishing. But I, I think it will be a bit of a, more of a struggle for them this season. I think teams have you know, suss them out a lot more. Joe, I'm going to come straight back to you. Acceptable uh -oh. finish for Sheffield United and a predicted finish for me, please. Accepted finish is staying in the league. It, um, so I've got them down as 13. Christoph? I don't think they'll do quite as well as, as Joe said. I've got them 15th, but like I said earlier, I think you can throw a blanket over pretty much the bottom half after the league bar a couple. Chris Coughlin? Sheffield United fans will have a right to have a bit of optimism. But same as Dotty, I've got them 15th. You're listening to Matchday FM. Did look at one stage, we'd maybe have four teams battling it out for uh, for Champions League place on the final day. Obviously, Chester. Sorry, yeah, Chelsea. Chelsea, Leicester, oh. Manchester United. Start again. That's yeah. going in a sting. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Liverpool, Liverpool, Man City, Man United, and Chester. <laughs> Banter, debate, and the odd good point too. Right here on Matchday FM. Southampton ended last year really, really, really well. Um, very impressive under Ralph Hasenhutl. But early on the season, they were, you know, it was, it was like chalk and cheese, wasn't it? They were, they were poor. I'm going to come to Chris Stott first. I want you in particular to focus maybe on the 9-0 on the drubbing. There we go. There um, we go. Just about a minute. Who, who had a minute on the sweepstake for that? Joe, Rich yeah, Joe Richardson well, has left the Zoom call. Yeah, well, <laughs> who, had a, who had a minute on the sweepstake? Well, that, that, to be honest, that's why I've come to Chris Stott over it because I knew Chris Coughlin would like very much so like to talk about it. Um, and I'm no, sure I'm he really will. No, I've got I'm, nothing about it. I just knew we were going to talk about it. And I know yeah, but, well, well, we can't not talk about it. It's a record, exactly, isn't it? But, exactly. But, you know, um, obviously, Joe, I know you probably don't want to talk about it, which is why I won't ask you. As I say, 9-0 drubbing at home. Before that, Southampton have been poor as well. Really struggling for form. You know, the build-up to that game in terms of the performances and what, what caused that performance? Ultimately, that it was out of the blue, that, that kind of results. They were poor going into that, but I don't think anybody expected that. And not against Leicester City. If it had been Manchester City, people might have gone, 
to further hit six, seven, eight against other teams. What I'm actually going to do here, I'm going to spur Joe's blushes a little bit. I'm going to move it on slightly and say that I think the club deserve an enormous amount of credit to the way they responded to that. Record defeat, humiliated. But the fact that they stuck with Hassenhutl, at the time, I, I was amazed. I honestly thought it was going to be like an hour before he got binned. But they stuck with him, and what a brilliant move that was because he's shown that he knows that this Southampton team under him can do something. I think the players need a lot of credit to how they responded for the rest of the season. They didn't let it affect them. Most teams who get beat 9-0 nine, nine or by them, big score lines are right down there. They were always looking up. I think the fact they got beat 9-0 makes people acknowledge the fact that they did really well at the back end of the season more. You know, they'd have got beat 3-0 in that game. I don't think they'd have got the credit they actually deserved. As Chris Stott rightly mentioned, uh, the effects of that going forward where it sparked a dramatic improvement in form. Just how good of a job has Hassan Hootel uh, done and how impressive and easy on the eye of Southampton become? Uh, I, I think it would have been the easiest sacking I'd ever seen, to be honest with you. It turned out to be a turning point. It really did. Um, albeit after that, I know they, they lost to City, but led for a long, long time in the game. Then the Everton defeat after that. But after that, plenty of good performances. The win against uh, Watford, which was absolutely crucial. The James Ward-Prowse free kick in that game. At the time, we thought it could have been a, a six-pointer, but obviously Saints pushed on after that. And after lockdown, they were absolutely fantastic. I mean, if you look at the 1-0 the win, against City in particular. Nothing was getting past Alex McCarthy that day. Nothing. And a big thing about Alex McCarthy as well, because Angus Gunn started the season, I don't think Hassan Hootel really knew who his number one goalkeeper was going to be, especially since well, the 9-0 was the death of Gunn, really, wasn't it? Let, 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 let's be honest. And McCarthy came in and was absolutely wonderful. The whole defence as well. Stevens and Bednarek, I thought, did, did fantastically last season. I really, really did. And, and the permanent signing of Carl Walker-Peters, I really do like. I, re I really do rate him. And just another good English right-back, which we seem to, <laughs> which seems to be the most... We've easily got the most depth of any country in the world in terms of right-back, with absolutely no debate. I'm sure we'll get on to him as well, but um, I, I claim to be the president of the Danny Ings fan club. The best season of his career, and I'm absolutely buzzing for him the way it worked out under Hassan Hull, who deserves an enormous amount of credit for sticking to his guns and putting the wrongs right at Southampton. Danny Ings, great season last year for Southampton. Um, he's got himself back in the England squad. To my surprise, I thought he was finished. Joe, talk to me about the form of Danny Ings, how important that was to Southampton. Well, it all, it all ties into um, to the, the complete turnaround um, around uh, around Christmas time, uh, you actually forget that um, it took him eight games of the season to actually get off the mark last season, which puts into perspective how incredible a season he had to score twenty two goals, and you know not many of them were penalties either. Um, it, it's absolutely astonishing. Um, the guy, I mean, I was a little bit skeptical somewhat that we made the the uh the loan um a permanent deal because um you know going into the season with a strike force of of ings uh long and then obviously che adams came in uh, obviously found it uh pretty pretty tricky for the season 
I was like, oh, that is pretty light. I mean, imagine, you know, Ingsy um, has had obviously terrible uh, injury troubles. Um, but he, he was just absolutely outstanding. Natural finishers, I don't think you get much better than him. The, the, the types of goals he was scoring um, at the start of the season seemed to be uh, tap-ins from, uh, you know, uh, charging down goalkeepers, uh, the Liverpool goal, the Tottenham goal where he tackles Lloris on the line. But then, you know, the, the, finish, the finishes, like since, you know, the, the lockdown, the amount of times he would cut inside and I just knew he'd, he'd, he'd hit the far corner. The, the, the Norwich corner. goal in particular you're thinking of? Yeah, the Norwich goal. Uh, he scored a goal against Brighton as well, bottom corner. Watford, he scored two. He was just playing with such confidence. Um, and it was, just, it was just brilliant to see. I will obviously have my say on, uh, on last uh, season and how we started. Um, I've obviously sat in silence of you lot talking about the, uh, the Leicester game. Thankfully, we didn't talk about the, the bare bones of uh, every single goal in detail, but we were getting that way. I actually don't think that that was the rock bottom. I honestly think it was the uh, the Everton game, the two weeks after I went to that game. And, you know, I always try and leave the game with one positive thought. And, you know, it might be a, um, a youngster who's come on and, um, and done well, or, you know, we might have been trying to play the right way to win. But honestly, we were so bad. So bad. Uh, Everton, we didn't have a shot in the first half. Everton took the lead. We, we've talked about uh, Everton, etc. This was under Silver. This was not a good period for Everton. Um, it was just like lambs to the slaughter. I was like, Hassan Hootall, this team is done. I am done with football. Championship, here we come. But what happened was he actually started putting square pegs in round holes because he was actually playing Bednarek at left back at times. He was playing Danso at right back, who uh, struggled a lot. Vestergaard was playing at that stage. And then we had the international break after the Everton game. And it was honestly like a, a different team. Chris alluded to the Watford game. We beat them. We beat Norwich on the, the next game. That was obviously massive, two wins in a row. And then... Uh, obviously, the the away form uh, was was incredible. Beating Chelsea away, beating Leicester away, just outstanding. Um, absolutely brilliant. The Manchester City game was one of the proudest uh, days I've ever had as a Southampton fan. I'd have loved to have been in the ground. Jack Stevens and Jan Bednarek. I've uh, there were uh, a culmination of prime Baresi and Maldini that night. It was it was it was astonishing. <laughs> But yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really optimistic. Hassan Hootel has done an amazing job um, of getting to his first 11. He's got his first 11 nailed down. The squad is a different matter. There is still a lot of deadwood in that squad that needs getting rid of. Uh, if we can keep a first 11 fit and a Danny Ings fit, we'll have a good season. So far, Southampton have brought in Kyle Walker-Peters on a permanent. Obviously, as Chris mentioned, that's a good sign. And Mohamed Salisu being brought in from Valladolid. What areas or other areas would you say that Southampton need to address? To be fair, I think on paper, they've got a pretty decent team. I think you probably just look at Hoiberg's gone, making sure they've got the right replacement for him. It's probably the, the one that springs to mind. But I, I like him on paper. I think they've pretty decent like Joe said Deadwood get rid of them replace them with better players who can 
push for the first team. That we've tried though, the, Chris. We've tried yeah, for the last that, two, three years. That's, that's the that's issue. The issue. Into, yeah. Can't offload them. And the, and the thing is as well, um, Southampton are, are in that crop of teams, aren't they, who are very much after the same sort of players. I don't mind their team at all, and but you know they get a couple of really good players in, like they get another centre midfielder to replace Hoiberg. I'll put it out there now. I think they're going to have a, a really good year anyway because I think they showed a, a lot at the back end of the season that, that makes you think they're, they're going to have a good season and a couple of additions if they can would be a, a really good um, start to to progress again because you know what? I think it was first couple of years when we were at uni when. Uh, with Pochettino there and Koeman when they were really up, up there, they could get back there with a, with a few additions. I, I yeah. really do think that. They were yeah. great. They were great days at uni, weren't they? For for for, remember, uh, for me. Yeah, I remember watching a game with you, United against Southampton. I'm sure sure you was it was Tadic at source. Yeah, Tadic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was Those great, were the man. days, eh? Joe, Chris Stott has just mentioned about uh, Pierre Emil Hoybieg. Uh, obviously. He was the Southampton captain. I know you were a massive fan of him, as was I. How big a blow is that to Southampton to lose him? If you'd have asked me this question 12 months ago, I'd be devastated, to be honest. But I think he was poor last season. I really do. Has all the... He doesn't actually get the um, the credit off... Well, he didn't get the credit off Southampton fans for how technically good he was, obviously... He's come as a progeny of, of uh, Pep Guardiola from Bayern Munich. Very technically good. It gets about the pitch, obviously, um, and is a, is a good tackler. Um, but I, honestly, I, I don't know. He, he, was, he was poor for, for last season, I have to, I have to say. And um, Oro Romeo actually came in at the back end of last season and was very, very good. Since the lockdown, I really didn't think that he had that much of an impact on the team. And that's why I'm really... You know, you expect me to probably say a different answer, but I, I think it's a good deal. The, the Walker-Peters-Hoyberg for Southampton, the, the swap deal, is a very good deal. I mean, Walker-Peters came in and was, was brilliant. I mean, I don't understand how Jan Valery was playing ahead of him at the start, which was bizarre. I mean, that lad is, can hardly kick a football. I think Tom Whitehead can kick a football better than him. But, a bit harsh uh, on Jan Valery, that joke. Yeah, no. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. But yeah, um, the, the 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 swap deal for me, uh, I I don't think we're um, we're honestly losing losing too much. We obviously, I'm saying that without us buying a replacement, so that has to happen. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, it's Romeo and James Ward-Prowse who are the two uh, central midfielders. You've got Will Smallbone in there, who looks a decent player, uh, decent um, ability-wise, but uh, needs to toughen up. Um, if he's going to play centre midfield in the Premier League. So, uh, crying out for a centre midfielder. But uh, no, I'm not massively sad to see Hoiberg go. And I mean, if you know, if he doesn't want to be there, then he can go. It's fine. That's a good attitude to have, Joe, to be fair. Um, I've been burnt many times. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, thanks for reading on my parade there because I, I was expecting you to say that Hoiberg was the best thing since sliced bread. And I was going to agree with you, but throwing the schedule into it, the pit of despair. What's the ceiling for this team, for Southampton? If they can carry on their form from last season, I genuinely believe there's European football there for Saints. You look at the, the, the EFL Cup, the fact is that the first four rounds are all played in September. Some, well, we could have quite some surprises, to be honest with you. And Saints up against Brentford, who, and we know they're a good team, obviously depends about what happens with Watkins and Ben Rama over the next few weeks. But 
I do genuinely believe that the ceiling for Saints is European football. Chris Stott, I'm going to come to you now. Acceptable finish for the Saints this season and a predicted finish, please. Bare minimum for a club like Southampton is top half because of what they've shown in the past and what they showed at the back end of last season. Like I've said a few times, I think there's a cluster of clubs with not a lot between them. I think they'll push for, for Europe. I've got them ninth. Don't be surprised if they have a good one in one of the cups either. With the right draws, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the case for anyone really, isn't it? I mean, yeah, if, you get Man, to... if you get Man City fair brand, you, yeah. you might as well kiss goodbye <laughs> to that. Chris Coughlin? I would say top half and tenth, to be honest with you, in terms of what I want to see acceptable for Saints and uh, where, where I think they'll finish. As for, for the reasons that I've said about the quality of the squad, Danny Ings is a natural finisher. I've, I've, I've believed that ever since, uh, I've genuinely, ever since uh, saw him at Burnley, came to Liverpool. We all know how unfortunate he was there. And I am genuinely buzzing for the lad that he's found his home at Saints. I'm going to give the final word to Joe, who obviously, being a Southampton fan, will appreciate that. I don't, I don't quite agree with uh, what Scotty says about um, how we, sh- we should be accepting top half minimum. Uh, because you have to remember that this is a team that has been battling relegation for the last three seasons and um, basically half a season on European form. For them to sustain it over a 38-game season, um, I don't see happening. Top half should be the target, um, but I'll say I'll, I'll be very optimistic and say 10. Again, Joel, that's a full house because I completely agree with you again. I think Southampton are going to finish 10th. And I also agree that I don't think for a club like Southampton that at the minimum is top half. There's a gap between Everton, Leicester and Wolves. I fancy, I do agree with Chris Stoughton in that I think they could go far in the Cups given the right draw. They're going to be a match for anyone. Prove that against Manchester City. There's definitely a chance or scope for them to, to improve further in the coming years. Chaps, it's been very, very insightful talking to you this evening. You've been a credit to yourselves, your families. But that is it for this evening on Match the FM. Be sure to keep across our socials, Facebook, Twitter and online. Thank you very much for joining me this evening. I've been Sam Jordan, Joe Richardson, Chris Stott, Chris Coughlin. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back next time where we preview the very last four teams in the Premier League. Thank you and good night.